everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. In this episode, I chat with Carl Davis, the executive director of the Crow Shadow Institute for the Arts. Carl was very generous with both his time and his transparency as we chatted about the residencies, the history of the program, and the ways that Crow's Shadow seeks to serve its community and look to the future. If you're enjoying these episodes of Pine Copper Lime, it'd mean a lot to me if you could leave a review or share it with a fellow printmaker who you think might find it interesting. It really does make a difference, especially when we're just trying to get this podcast off the ground. The podcast is released every two weeks, and in between those two weeks, I release an article on the Pine Copper Lime website dedicated to the subject of the upcoming podcast. It's a good place to see things like photographs of the prints that I'm chatting about with my guests. Pine Copper Lime can also be found on Facebook and Instagram as well, which is a great way to keep up with what I've been up to. So without further ado, here's Carl Davis. Hello. Hi, Carl. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast here. Thanks for having me. I I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. So I have to tell you, I actually talked to Winjin Ho last week. And uh, (laughs) she she told me that I need to um, make sure that I get a pun from you at some point in our conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I... I, Usually when their puns on demand are, are hard to come by. So I, I know, I, I certainly I certainly understand. I know it's it's an art form, so but um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you... Wyndham was so she was here uh, last year. She she comes to Crow Shadow quite a bit, I think every other year or so she tries to make a trip out here. Um and so last year was the first uh year she was here f- for the full time that I was here. I think she had just completed a residency right before I started in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's an amazing um, person in general. She's so uh, diverse in her background in terms of her uh, education and, and, and arts background. And so the way she works is, is, is pretty unique, even for you, our setting, which Crow Shadow is fairly unique in general, too. Definitely. Um, yeah. No, she, yeah, and she's just, she's such a lovely person. We had a really good chat so I'll make sure to to send it to you as well when we're when we're done with editing and all that because she's she's great she spoke fondly of her experiences at Crow Shadow for sure yeah yeah so um so this seems like a good segue into asking that how did you end up coming to to Crow Shadow can you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit and and let people know how you ended up where you are and what your role there entails Sure. Well, I I came to Crow Shadow in 2014. Um, I'm a native Oregonian. I was born and raised in Portland. Um, I have some. I have an art history uh, undergrad degree, and I worked in galleries throughout Portland. Shortly after I finished my degree in, uh, in 2003, and then um, my wife and I moved to Alberta uh, to go to school uh, to get our master's degrees at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And in 2014, finished that and. Uh, found out about this job opening and applied and and got to come back home to Oregon. Um, so as an executive director here, I'm pretty much in charge of all the operational aspects of the organization, um, day-to-day things, but also a lot of fundraising, grant writing, um, program scheduling, um, a bit of, since we're a very small organization, I do a bit of facility maintenance and all those fun things mm-hmm. that uh, you don't have to 
think about as a, <laughs> that have to get done, but we all kind of pitch in. And Crow Shadow, uh, you know, as I mentioned, is a is a fairly small organization, but uh, you know, we've been here uh, over 25 years now. This is actually our 26th year. Um, we were founded in 1992 by the painter James Lavador, who um, is a Walla Walla, and he is part of the Confederate tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, where we're located. So um, when he started Crow Shadow, it was the idea of bringing creative people from the reservation uh, into kind of a, a structure of of plan learning and, and uh, opportunities for uh, creative outlets. Um, but it's kind of grown in certain ways and we focused down in certain ways. Um, 2001, we hired our master printer, Frank Jansen, and since then have been doing uh, print residencies with contemporary indigenous and native artists from all over the, the country and parts of the world, too. Um, when Frank retired in uh, actually just last year, we hired a new master printer, Judith Bauman, and she's been in charge of the studio since then. And we're continuing that program. Uh, kind of full force so yeah that's great so that's basically how the institute ended up being in Pendleton is it sounds like the founder has a connection to that particular area is that where the 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 tribe is from is that area yeah yeah so the confederated tribe of the Umatilla Indian Reservation it's three tribes the Cayuse the Umatilla and the Walla Walla and James Lavador is Walla Walla um, so it was really focused and we are still located on the reservation and it's very focused on the um, the native and indigenous community uh, we also facilitate things like traditional arts workshops um, beadwork um, you know basket weaving those kind of uh, activities and kind of um, serving the community at a, a very local um, uh, immediate uh, need, but also trying to bring in people from outside the area to teach some of those classes and also uh, bring in people to learn from those classes. Um, so it is very community driven. It's very community oriented and it has a lot of very localized uh, constituents, but we do serve a much broader community through the contemporary printmaking facility and, and, and our residency program. Yeah. How did it come to be a printmaking facility? Did James have a connection to printmaking? Um, kind of tenuously, but yeah. So he, when he was, um, you know, starting his arts career and, and getting a, a bit more recognition, he was invited to a number of different residencies around the country to places like Rutgers and Tamarind Institute in Albuquerque. Uh, and through those uh, residencies, he, he really was kind of shown the, the, what printmaking can do for just not just the artist, but a community um, and, and how, it, you know, it's a kind of a democratic uh, technique or process, I guess, um, printmaking in general, but especially lithography, which is what we focus on um, through his time at Tamarind and, and meeting people like Marge Devon and, um, and at Rutgers meeting Eileen Fody and having that kind of um, that exposure to that, those different types of printmaking and what a master printer can do and what printmaking can do for an artist to expand their, their kind of artistic vocabulary, but also um, give them, give an artist a chance to kind of disseminate their work to a broader audience. You know, it's kind of, you make one painting that gets put in one place and seen by, you know, a small number of people. If you make a print, an edition of 20, that's, it can be disseminated to 20 different places and, you know, exponentially, uh, number of people can see that work and so um, gives that artist a bit more exposure 
uh, and can broaden their their career as well. So that's that's the kind of things that he was thinking of or seeing happen in those residencies elsewhere. And when uh, he started Crow Shadow, it was with a group of people as well on the reservation. It wasn't just him alone. There was there was another artist that was sharing the, a studio space here uh, in the same building that we're lo still located, um, and any number of, of supporters of his on the reservation and in the community, the larger Pendleton community, um, started Crow Shadow as kind of a uh, on a whim a little bit, but with the idea that printmaking would be a focus down the line as, as an integral part of what we're doing. And it's kind of come to fruition, having a master printer, having a, a full professional printmaking studio on Native American reservation. That's, that's a really unique aspect to, um, to what we do and to the printmaking community, I think in general. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things of course that printmaking has is that aspect of the community building and it, the fact that it's by nature this collaborative medium. And if you're looking at sort of serving a community and creating space for collaboration, it seems like printmaking fits into that as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the collaborative aspect I think is really key to uh, what we do for artists, especially. You know, we, we like to invite artists that don't have printmaking backgrounds themselves. Uh, and to give them the freedom of of the studio and have the master printer um, be the technical brains of the operation essentially and and give the artist the freedom to create an image or or build an image through the printmaking, but also um, kind of guide them in that in in a way. And the decisions are always, you know, the artist is always making the creative decision, but with input from the master printer or the apprentice, and but also being informed by the community at, at large or the environment. Uh, those are all, um, I think, exciting aspects of, of the collaborative print process, too. Yeah, certainly. So it's, you mentioned inviting artists. Is it mostly an invitational basis? Is that how they end up coming to you? Right now, yes, because we're, we are still fairly, fairly small physical location we have two presses uh one master printer one one residence room um we do have to maintain a fairly um small program and so uh all of our residencies are through invitation only and it has been successful in that we're still keeping a large interest in those residencies and we do have a number of people that you know express interest in in coming to us um, and we try to work with as many uh, different people as we can while still giving them that individual opportunity, individual um, uh, attention while they're here. Um, to have, you know, an invitation program, it's, it can seem, uh, I guess, a bit elitist in a way. And I, mm. I, do, I do try to shy away from that attitude. I mean, we try to accommodate as many people as we can, but because it's just a, such a small program, um, we... You know, when I started in 2014 uh, here, I I wanted to be as as open about it as possible. So we I, I surveyed a number of arts professionals in within Oregon, especially because a majority of our funding for the residencies come through the uh, Ford Family Foundation, which is an Oregon-centric um, funding organization. And their requirements for our grant are that we bring in Oregon-based artists. So I surveyed a number of um, uh, Oregon based um, arts professionals within uh, academic institutes, institutions, um, galleries, other arts practices, places like that. And we compiled a list of 
probably about 45 names of artists that would fulfill the grant requirements, but also be artists that we would want to work with. And from that list, we've uh, have we have a selection committee uh, within the organization, myself, uh, two board members, and uh, a consulting artist, and we then pick each year which artists we're going to work with. From the Ford Family Foundation, it's called the Golden Spot Award. We invite three artists a year um, and then try to expand a little bit uh, through other funding. We try to bring in at least one other artist from outside the region, so nationally recognized artist. Um, those grants or those those residencies have been funded through places like the Meyer Memorial Trust. Uh, and next year, we actually uh, received um, our first national endowment for the arts grant Ooh, and congrats. that will be funding three three artists uh three nationally recognized artists from outside the region that's really great and so it sounds like if, you know sort of looking from your website you work primarily with indigenous artists but not exclusively indigenous artists is that correct yeah that's correct um one of the visions of our organization this idea is bringing creative people together as as james labrador mentioned once um, and kind of reiterate this a lot is that we bring the reservation to the world and the re world to the reservation. Mm. Um, and so by, by bringing creative people to Crow Shadow, whether they're indigenous or not, it's, um, kind of bridging a lot of different communities and, and building those kind of, um, connections that then strengthen both communities themselves An artist without, you know, non-indigenous or non-native artists coming to the reservation for the first time might experience something different than a native person would. Um, um, but we try to give as many opportunities to, um, you know, people of color and, and other backgrounds um, at the same time that we're inviting Native and Indigenous artists to our studio. Yeah, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what it's like to run a center in Pendleton specifically and having that kind of rural aspect of it, but also having the Indigenous community so close and, and that location, I think, and, and how they think that affects the experience that people have there. Yeah, I think it's, it is an interesting aspect. It can be sometimes a challenge to be so far removed from larger uh, metropolitan centers. But in a way, I think our location lends itself to a bit of magic in a way. We struggle a little bit with even the local uh, population and recognizing, you know, the the kind of things that we do here and the, and the uh, value added aspect of what we, we bring to the community, but it is, it is always really special to have, um, you know, someone from the community, a local person walk in the door and exclaim like, wow, I can't believe you guys are here. You know, mm -hmm. this is amazing. Mm -hmm. So, and, but it is, it gives us a bit of a, I mean, it is a unique aspect to have a, a printmaking studio on a reservation. Um, and so it gives us a bit of cachet and, and, certain areas and then when you know the print is done the prints are done the editions are, are complete the artists have signed them and we can carry that work to print fairs in portland and new york and places like that uh, and people from those areas can see the high quality work that we're doing the the prints that we're producing the artists that we're working with they get to see like this kind of bit of magic and and how um you know it's it doesn't have to be in the middle of the city to be good art we, we can produce good art everywhere anywhere in the world and uh, yeah we're kind of a testament to that and um, the reservation is just uh, east of Pendleton proper um, and it's about a I think 
I don't know exact numbers, but it's 130,000 acres of the reservation itself encompasses, um, you know, farmland, uh, forest land, rangeland, a lot of different areas. Um, but Pendleton itself is is about a yeah, 15 minute drive from where we're located, just west of the reservation. And to kind of go back a little bit to maybe part, first part of your question too, what's it like to be running this reservation-based creative center uh, in a rural location? Pendleton itself is very um, creative. I think there's a ton of creativity, both in Pendleton and on the reservation. There's creative people making music and making arts and crafts and making art them, arts itself. And, and there is, I think, a, a very uh, open culture of creativity throughout the, the region, uh, in, not just in Pendleton and, and the reservation, but um, other towns nearby. La Grande has a, a university east Eastern Oregon University, there we go. Um, and they have a really th a thriving um, comprehensive arts program. Walla Walla has Whitman College and they have an uh, uh, amazing printmaking uh, facility there as well. So those the, those things being in close proximity, and I should mention also Walla Walla's foundry, they bring in nationally and international artists to work in their foundry on projects. So those kind of things are happening in the region. Um, at the same time, Pendleton is very um, a very music-oriented town. There's tons of music all the time. There's musicians traveling between Portland and Boise, and we're smack dab in the middle of that, mm. that route, you know, three hours from both cities. And we get people from all over the Northwest to come through and play music uh, in town for, you know, one night gig and they're gone but you know they they leave very lasting impressions on the town and and uh, and so we have that kind of creative juices flowing throughout the region and so we do have um, a number of of opportunities for collaboration with local community organizations and one uh, actually one project that's coming up the um we will be working in collaboration with uh, uh oregon East symphony which is a nonprofit symphony based in pendleton and together we're we're bringing the artist Raven Chacon to Crow Shadow and to the symphony to one um, compose a new uh, chamber orchestral piece that will be performed. And at the same time that he's here to do that uh, rehearsals and and um, those compositional parts, he'll be in the studio producing prints with us. Yeah. And then they'll be presented at the same time that they're 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 performing his new composition. So it's a really exciting project coming up, and it's a really exciting collaboration with a local community organization, um, creative organization. And that's um, first week of first two weeks of February of next year. So that's the kind of things that are happening, and it's not really. Um, on a regular basis, but there's a lot of that kind of undercurrent, that creative um, ideas and ha things happening throughout the region that we really try to kind of um, latch onto and 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 help promote and feed to. Yeah, that's great, and I love that cross medium collaboration as well, because um, of course we can artificially create the boundaries between music and visual arts and dance and performance and all of that. So. I love I love breaking down those walls when it happens because really great things can come out of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next question I have, I realize it's, it's not a wasn't a pre prepared one. It was something just sort of occurred while you were talking, so it may not be as clear. So let me know. But you know, when you were talking about bringing in artists from other places who who aren't indigenous, and I'm thinking about you know people who are maybe coming from. Europe or Asia who have a colonial history that is not nearly as recent. And so 
understanding that that complex and fraught and sometimes painful relationship between the colonizers and the indigenous communities and that that really hard history that's there and a history that's often of course not uh, not taught or explored um, nearly enough do people coming from places like that have kind of a steep learning curve to understand that dynamic or are they um, do you find that that it's something that is informs their practice in any way um, a little bit and I, I kind of I, I guess I'm gonna skirt the that question a a little bit as well, though, and that you know we we don't one we're not a political organization, right. so we're we're a creative organization that you know that builds opportunities for for social, educational, economic development, but we're not kind of you know we're not with, we're not building that those opportunities with um, I guess with a with an aim for uh, a statement in, in any way. When mm-hmm. the artists mm-hmm. are here and they're working in the studio, they might be addressing certain issues that are personal to them or that are are um, are pertinent to maybe political or or you know current situations. Um, you know, we had an artist here last year who had just been at Standing Rock, and his work was in general very political. But you know, his work while here in the studio was very personal, which was an interesting uh, thing to happen. So, yeah, I don't know if it really has come through in the the attitude or the the approach that artists have while in studio. Um, we certainly are aware and and try to um, you know maintain um, a certain level of of respect for those issues. You know, especially myself as a as a white male, you know, running a Native and Indigenous arts organization. Yeah. I have to definitely be aware and 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 cognizant of those kind of issues and and be um, be respectful to them. But at the same time, we don't dictate that kind of um, approach for any of the artists that are here or or try to suss that out while they're here. You know, if an artist is responding to that in a way, then that will come through in the art. Um, but honestly, it you know. We try to maintain as much openness as we can um, through the studio practice and studio program and, uh, and the other programs that we run. Um, so it really hasn't been. I, I mean, I personally haven't seen it as as an issue of of um, access or or uh, recognition, I guess. But um, it's honestly, I, I don't think we would ever try to squash that either if mm-hmm. an artist wants to express themselves in that way then that would be absolutely their right to do while they're here in studio that makes a lot of sense and it seems like it'd be important that the the facilitator who's offering these opportunities would maintain a kind of neutrality maybe for lack of a better word because you wouldn't want to feel like you were dictating what's expected of what's being produced um, that you would want to leave that open to, to the artist. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, well, and I'm thinking about, it. I mean, I'm sure you've been around for, for 25 years and I'm sure in that time, a lot of the, the dialogue and ideas about indigenous art administration has changed in that time. And I'm sure, you know, you all are, are quite, quite aware of it. Do you, do you know of like ways that Crow Shadow has sort of evolved to that or adapted or, or things that have changed in that time? Um, 
I, I wouldn't, I don't know if we've evolved or adapted in any way. I think um, as a nonprofit, there's always a, a level of, of adaptation to community needs and, and uh, responding to the, those needs. Um, but I don't think it's ever been an overt goal or, or, you know, kind of strategy to address those issues. I think, I think in terms of just how we were founded and how we've, how it's been run and, and the kind of goals that we've, that Crow Shadow has kind of set for itself over the years, it's always been to maintain the integrity of the art that's being produced and, and the community that it's serving and be as open to those things as possible. And, and you know, I, I, I'd say there's, we're not without controversy in some ways. I'm sure that not, we can't please every member of the community. We can't, we can't address every single need of, mm. of um, such a unique kind of situation that we're in but you know we try to be as open as possible and accommodating as possible to to everyone who comes through the door um whether it's you know kids wanting to learn how to make prints through lino cuts and things like that to you know facilitating those traditional arts classes um to very well established you know contemporary native artists who have very particular you know approach to their art making and we try to accommodate them through the master printer program. Um, would you talk maybe a little bit more in depth about the the master printer artist collaboration and and how that works? Because that's always something that's that's really interesting to me. Yeah. So when, as I mentioned earlier, when Jim had been to Tamarind and saw that that model of the collaborative um, printmaking, uh, you know, it's based on a much older model of of printmaking done you know lithography invented in the in the 18th century and and kind of grew from there um when we have a master printer you know at, at our program started it was the idea that um we could bring in an artist who had no printmaking background they could work with a master printer for two weeks the master printer has the technical know-how, has the um, expertise. You know, printmaking itself is is very technical in some ways, and and you know, brain heavy in a lot of ways. And so, and lithography then takes that and it makes it even more exponential in terms yeah. of technical. <laughs> you know, it's it's a kind of a magical process that I still don't understand, and I've seen it happen hundreds of times now. Um, so the master printer, you know, they guide the the artist, gives them the materials to produce the plates, gives them, um, you know, background on on how certain materials work with certain other materials, um, guides the process in terms of, you know, what layers work in which manner and which which order. Um, possibly, you know, you know, not a creative or, or the aesthetic idea of what colors go with what colors, but how those colors will interact once they're layered on the, on the page. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, the, the artist comes in, we try to give them some background before they get here. And and there's some collaborative, you know, conversations happening before they get here in terms of their goals for the, the two weeks that they're here, possibly the, um, the, the type of work that they're going to be working on, whether it's going to be the lithography or possibly monoprints or monotypes, um, <clears throat> or even some relief printing. Uh, and then when they're here, it's just about, about the process about, you know, getting the image to the page, either through the, um, the photolitho process or even stone work. 
and then uh, proofing, doing going through uh, all layers of color proofing, color of trial proofing, um, with the goal of those two weeks to be uh, to have completed an approval to print. So the artist is signing on the back of that that print, you know, approval to print with necessary uh, drying times and and all those things. So uh, after the print, the artist leaves, then the master printer and their assistant will then publish the work. They'll they'll pull those additions depending on, um, you know, they'll have with the artist they'll have a, uh, have agreed on the a goal for the addition size. So we generally stay below twenty, but sometimes a more technically uh, involved process or or print will will shoot for twelve and hopefully we'll get fourteen that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So the, those that work is published after the artist is gone, uh, and then once it's curated and the edition is cold to uh, an exacting degree then the, the artist then either comes back or we take the work to them and they sign a number of them and then um, we enter one of those prints into our permanent collection uh, it's framed here at the studio and then we uh, have it ready for display and we loan it to local institutions regional museums and things like that for um, exhibit and then one of them also goes to uh, the Halley Ford Museum of Art at mm. um, University in Salem and there are they are our archive institution so they hold the archive for us um, they have the right to photograph the work and display it but it's still part of it's not accessioned into their collection it's still part of our collection um, just for safekeeping and longevity and then the rem- remainder of the work is we we hold as the publisher and we sell it um, uh, on our website to at print fairs and things like that um, after publication costs the artists then uh, get to um, share in proceeds uh, we sh- we split the proceeds with the artist 50 um, 50. And that helps to maintain our operating budget, but also benefits the artist in the long term. You know, we've worked with, um, I, th- I don't know the exact number, but it's almost 50 different artists through our residency program since 2001. Um, and we send checks regularly to about half those artists every year That's through great. the sale of their prints. So it is, it's a long-term benefit to them as well for their time in the studio. Yeah, that's that's interesting because um, so you also you're functioning really as a as a gallery as well then in that way because it's I've heard of other publishing studios where they then just split the edition with the artist um, but the fact that that you guys also act as the as the the selling agent and and sending the checks I feel like in a way that can be even more beneficial because then the artist doesn't have to worry about finding a home for the prints, you know, once <laughs> And that's exactly them. kind of how that started because we did, I guess, when we first started the residency program before my time, they did split the edition. They were taking that model that other print publishers were doing and splitting the edition with the artist with the intention that the artist would then go to take that edition, half of the edition to their gallerist and their gallerist would then sell them. But I think a number of artists that we work with just didn't have that infrastructure or that that part of their career established yet, uh, and they were finding it hard to, you know, sell their own prints in ways. So um, I think after just a couple of years of that, we just took on the full edition, and you know, we do consign works to galleries, but you know, we're we're the initial um, sales point for those prints, and that um, I think is it adds a, a bit of you know, a layer of more work for us to do, but I think it's part, you know, I really do enjoy that aspect to it. Having the opportunity to place, you know, artist work and 
personal collections and public collections and museums and things like that. That's that's pretty rewarding. Um, you know, two years ago we we placed 18 prints at the Library of Congress. Mm. Um, just last year, we worked with the Whitney Museum of uh, American Art to uh, for them to acquire um, one of our very first prints by Edgar Heap of Birds, and that that's that kind of aspect to the the job for me is really personally rewarding. It's being able to to um, promote an artist's career in that way. Yeah, because you you have a background in commercial galleries in Portland a little bit, is that right? Yeah, I worked as the um, uh, eventually I worked well I worked for almost. Um, seven years for Forlet Gallery uh, in downtown Portland, um, and eventually was the gallery director for for those years. Uh, so I worked closely with Charles Froelich there, and um, was able to work with uh, contemporary artists, both native and non-native, in the Portland uh, art scene and and well Northwest region as well. Um, and then some other, you know, as a gallerist in the you know early finishing your degree, what do you do? You do right. interning. Preparatory work, that kind of stuff. So, some other little jobs around the uh, the city, but primarily I worked with uh, at Fuller Gallery for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love what you were to go back to what you said earlier about James's phrase about bringing the world to the reservation and the reservation to the world. And speaking of the sort of the uh, latter half of that, so you you mostly do. Uh, selling online, you said print fairs. Um, is that sort of the primary way people can can see and purchase work that you're producing? Um, a lot of times people see the work in exhibits that we send around. Like I mentioned, the permanent collection um, that we have, every single print that we produce, we you know we frame at least one of them, um, and then we loan those exhibit those prints out to exhibits um, to regional museums and things like that. So that's one aspect as yeah, the print fairs we, we've been doing the Portland fine print fair, um, at the Portland art museum every year for the last, now it's almost five years, um, for the last two years and coming up in October, we've, we'll, we participate in the editions and artist book fair in New York, um, in a, at the end of October. And then, um, and then it's just a, a lot of, um, word of mouth, uh, kind of things. We also, with, uh, last year with the Halley Ford Museum of Art, we produced our 25th anniversary exhibit, which was a major retrospective essentially of all the printmaking that's been done at Crow Shadow since 2001. Um, and with, uh, Rebecca Topkins, uh, at the university there, uh, Willamette University, she curated it and then helped produce a, our first book publication. Um, she co-authored an essay with Heather Atone uh, about the history of indigenous printmaking in North America. And then, um, one of actually, she's a board member, but she's also an art historian. Um, Prudence Roberts wrote a, a beautiful essay about the history of Crow Shadow itself. Mm. And then the book has been distributed, you know, it's through the university of Washington press, um, online and things like that. So that's actually gotten a lot of, uh, recognition for us too. Um, but yeah, a lot of our sales do come a little bit through word of mouth, but we also have a gallery uh, at our facility that's open to the public and we you know display our work here and um and people come in off the street and see it it's open to the public monday through friday nine to five um so and we love having people visit the studio um, and gallery just to see what we're doing as i mentioned yeah people come in the door and they're blown away we like to say we have a 
world-class print facility in the middle of a wheat field because it's kind of how it feels when you 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 find your way down the gravel road or or up the up the um old state highway to us yeah yeah well i think that's um yeah that's that's really wonderful and and i've always thought of of crow shadow as as a really unique and important model so i'm i'm certainly glad you guys are there doing what you're doing thank you very much yeah, yeah. um so i think that's that's basically all the questions that I have for you, unless there's anything else we didn't touch on that you think people need to know about Crow's Shadow and the work there? Well, there's one aspect of our programming that I didn't, I kind of might have touched on a little bit, but I didn't. And I think yeah. it is um, becoming more and more important to our, our kind of identity and, and our programming for the community. Uh, we work really closely with Nick Yahweh Community School, which is the charter high school here on the reservation. And for the past four years, um, there was a program prior to my time, but it had ended essentially uh, when some funding ran out from the from the school district. But um, when I started here, I kind of reestablished it. Um, so we we invite um, it's kind of a self-selected group of students each year from the school. Um, they they come up to the studio once a week during the school year and work with the master printer. Um, so they've been learning different types of printmaking, a lot of lino cut work, but also um, starting them on screen print. And mm. they've done a few um, lithographs as well. Um, and the end of each school year, they get to put on an exhibit of their work uh, in the studio or in the gallery, I should say, um, to kind of show off to the community and their family and friends what they've been doing in the studio. Um, and then we offer, you know, the students get to, they're, they're producing an addition, so they get to price their work um, accordingly. And they, when they sell their work, we, they, they get to keep 100% of the proceeds. You know, the prints are, they generally under $100 each, but um, to, to be able to, to see the students, you know, the community respond to their work and, and, to purchase their work too, I think um, it's no, no greater feeling to write a check to a a, a new new artist who's <laughs> yeah. realizing quickly that their art can be kind of a viable uh, you know career in a way too, and um, and I think one of the proudest things I can say is that every student now uh, I think we've had about sixteen to eighteen students through this program. Every single student has been in the program has sold their one of at least one of their prints to somebody that they've never met before. Oh, so for the great. public to kind of um, embrace their work and to to validate their creative spirit, I think is really special. Um, and that I think that's kind of something that we don't talk a lot about, but I think is becoming, you know, like as I meant as I said, a, a bigger aspect to our programming in the coming years. Yeah, that's wonderful. Cause yeah, I I didn't uh, I didn't know that that was part of the programming, but that's really really great, and especially having that that element of people who don't know the students buying the work. I know I know adult practicing artists who would love if that happened more often to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, selling artwork that's always a goal of an artist. Even though I mean, well, it's not always a goal. I mean, the, I think making art is always a personal right, right, personal yeah. endeavor, but. To have it validated through um, public recognition like that, I think, um, is always something that people, you know, you do need a little bit of, of someone else saying good job and buying your artwork is the ultimate good job. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, that's wonderful. Well, well great. Um, so before we sort of sign off, can you just 
give all the websites and the handles that people need to learn more about Crow's Shadow or see some work and maybe purchase it? Sure. Well, our our website is just, you know, www.crowsshadow.org. And you'll have to make sure you got the double S in the middle. Um, and then um, our our Instagram is crows underscore shadow. And we, uh, our Instagram is pretty busy. And and a lot of artists that come through have their own handles that they um, they promote, you know, our Instagram with. Um, I We don't really use tw- Twitter a lot. And our Facebook page is just Crow Shadow. Um, Institute of the Arts and all those places will kind of direct back to the same place. Um, and yeah, you can see all the work that's available for sale on the on the website itself. And there's actually, you know, an option to buy if you want to put things in a shopping cart. So we and we ship worldwide. So <laughs> great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for spending a, a Friday afternoon chatting with me. Um, this is really really great stuff, and I'm I'm excited to to share it with people. No, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk about Crow Shadow and to to get to kind of spread the word, proselytize a little bit about printmaking and, and our programming. So thank you. Cool. So as the saying goes, that's our show for this week. You can learn more about the Crow Shadow Institute for the Arts through their website. I'll put a link to that, as well as to the book Carl mentioned, the one that was published by the University of Washington Press and celebrates Crow's Shadow's 25 years of being a fine art print publisher. I hope to see you all again in two weeks' time when I chat with the indelible Miles Calvert. In the meantime, you can follow Pine Copper Lion through my Facebook and Instagram, and of course at pinecopperlion.com. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak, and music by Joshua Weber. Thanks so much for listening. I can't wait to see you again.